Do you know which congressional district you'll be voting in next year? There's a good chance you don't know and furthermore can't know. Today we dive into the never-ending redistricting wars, whether there's a way to peacefully resolve them, and why four years into the decade, millions of Americans' political boundaries are still totally up in the air. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. It's hard to argue that the way we do redistricting in this country is working. At least it's hard to argue that when considering that redistricting started after the 2020 census, and in about a dozen states, we still don't know what the maps are going to look like for next year's election because of ongoing state and federal litigation. But we're going to hear from some folks today who say, actually, litigation isn't a bad thing. It's better to be able to resolve political disputes in court rather than the alternative, which is unrest and even political violence. And they're not just saying that because they're attorneys who love litigation, although, yeah, they are that. So first, just so we're all on the same page, I asked my colleague Greg Giroux, a veteran political reporter at Bloomberg Government, to come in and give me the schoolhouse rock version of how redistricting is supposed to go. So the goal of redistricting is to equalize the populations of congressional districts within each state after a decade of population shifts. And the states are supposed to make them about equal in population after the census is conducted. And that happens early in years ending in zero. And it's worth a reminder of why we have to do this every 10 years. The Supreme Court in the 1960s issued a series of rulings that set the one person, one vote principle. It basically said that congressional districts within a state have to be drawn to be of approximately equal population. Like, for example, take a, take a hypothetical state with two districts, okay? Let's say District A has 100,000 people and District B, over, over a decade, wound up to have 200,000 people, just for the sake of argument. So ideally, you'd want those two districts to have 150,000 persons apiece. But let's say you didn't redistrict in that state. It's like the smaller district. Each person who lives in that district has two votes instead of just one. Exactly. And we saw this happen uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, as late as the 1960s, where some states might refuse to redistrict, uh, sometimes uh, powered by rural interests that had smaller populations. The Supreme Court put the kibosh on that. So that's how it's done. Every 10 years, we redraw districts to equalize their populations. But of course, it's not nearly that simple. People often feel that the lawmakers who draw these districts, who, let's not forget, are drawing their own districts, aren't acting in good faith. They file lawsuits, and not infrequently, they win. And then judges order the lawmakers to redraw the maps, or in some cases, the judges redraw the maps themselves. And this stuff can take a long time, the discovery process and trials and appeals and that sort of thing. Now, we think about like a two-year election process of kind of a very long time, but every state has its general election. But they have to hold primaries, and some of them are held in the spring of the election year. But you also have to allow time for candidates to file to for run for those offices, to collect signatures, to qualify for those races. And you also have to give state and local election officials enough time to prepare for the election. And that's how litigation can easily cause states to miss redistricting deadlines, which, as Greg just mentioned, are shorter than you might think. Another reason is that neither political party has any inclination to stop fighting. Justin Levitt, a professor at Loyola Law School who specializes in redistricting, says even in a time when politics has become so vicious, political maps bring out an almost existential desperation that you just don't see with any other issue. Redistricting is a blood sport, and it is personal in a way. 
that most legislation is not. Politicians, incumbent legislators, refer to districts as their districts, their seats. And that is possessive in every sense and not just metaphorically. And so the redistricting process is about political control, yes, but it also targets individuals and individuals' jobs and livelihood in a way that very few other pieces of legislation do. As an example of this, Levitt pointed me toward an incident that occurred in early 1980s Illinois, when a debate about redistricting got not just contentious, but physical. We don't have video of the incident in question, but here's an excerpt from a UPI news story about it. <clears throat> Springfield, Illinois, June 28, 1981. Fists fly again on Illinois Senate floor. Senators Sam Vidalabine and Mark Rhodes had to be pulled apart and physically restrained after tangling. The diminutive Vidalabine said he hit Rhodes, quote, right on the jaw. Rhodes would not talk but was seen crying as he was led down the Capitol steps. The fight was sparked by Rhodes' anger over Democratic Senate President Philip Rock's unwillingness to act on a GOP congressional district plan. It was the second major eruption of tempers over the volatile remapping issue in as many weeks. That's pretty crazy, right? And so out of character for Illinois politics. Anyway, the current redistricting cycle that kicked off with the 2020 census hasn't seen any state capital fistfights, but it has seen a whole lot of litigation. The most prominent case so far is one called Allen v. Milligan out of Alabama. Here's Greg again to explain what happened there. In June, the Supreme Court surprisingly upheld a challenge to a Republican-drawn congressional map in Alabama that drew just one district out of seven where black voters could consistently elect their candidates of choice. You know, basically, courts have said that new congressional maps shouldn't or can't dilute the, the votes of uh, people of color. Abba Khanna is a partner at the Elias Law Group who works on redistricting cases, and she was one of the attorneys who won the Alabama case at the Supreme Court. She says more rulings like this one are the way to end the seemingly never-ending redistricting wars. I think the number one way to prevent and forego the need for more litigation is for a clear legal standard adopted by the courts, done and done, at least in Allen v. Milligan, and for states to listen, for jurisdictions to pay heed, so that the outcome will be so clear of what will happen if they continue to expend taxpayer resources in fighting these lawsuits, that it's actually most efficient and effective and productive for them and for their citizens to just follow the law so that plaintiffs don't have to continue to file the next suit and the next suit and the next suit. But Allen v. Milligan seems to be the exception here. Overall, the Supreme Court has said time and again it doesn't want to get involved in policing gerrymandering, at least where race is not involved. That's exemplified by a 2019 case called Rucho v. Common Cause, in which the court ruled 5-4 to four that it's not up to the federal courts to decide whether district maps are or are not too partisan. According to Justin Levitt, the Loyola law professor, the court got this all wrong. A really simple thought exercise clarifies this instantly. It is unthinkable that a legislature could pass a tax that is based entirely on whether you're a registered Republican or registered Democrat. That is and should be flatly unconstitutional in every court in the country. And there's line after line after line of precedent saying you cannot punish people for their partisan views, except in very specific contexts. The Supreme Court added redistricting kind of out of the blue 
I think, out of an act of cowardice because it didn't want to uphold that consistent precedent that you're not allowed to punish people based on what they think or believe. Because that's exactly what partisan gerrymandering is. And yet, if the court wanted to get out of the business of policing gerrymandering, why is there already another redistricting case at the court this term? We will hear argument this morning in case 22807, Alexander versus the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case out of South Carolina called Alexander. It has a different fact pattern than the Alabama case, but overall, both are asking the same question. Where's the line between illegal racial gerrymandering and totally legal and permissible political gerrymandering? This whole case is about uh, is about disentangling race and politics, right? That's what the whole case is about. What Justice Samuel Alito means there is that the court has ruled in the recent past that it's okay to draw districts to favor one party over another, but it's not okay to draw districts to favor one racial group over another. In the South Carolina case, this gets really tricky because African Americans tend to vote for Democrats by an overwhelming margin. So when South Carolina Republicans created a safe Republican seat by moving tens of thousands of black voters out of a congressional district, was that political or racial? During this month's oral arguments in the case, Chief Justice John Roberts seemed uncomfortable with the NAACP's arguments here because they didn't present any smoking gun, like an unearthed email from a lawmaker saying, we want to dilute black political power. Counsel, um, we have said that the burden that you're assuming of disentangling race uh, and politics in a situation like this is very, very difficult. Uh, but it is your burden, right? Yes, Your Honor. And, and you're trying to... to carry it without any direct evidence and with a wealth of political data that you're suggesting uh, your friends on the other side would ignore in favor of racial data. Have we ever had a case before where all it is is circumstantial evidence? But of course, smoking guns rarely actually materialize. So if the Chief Justice's reasoning wins the day here, that's one less avenue plaintiffs can use to file a redistricting lawsuit. But despite that, don't expect the flow of redistricting litigation to slow. In fact, there are already other redistricting cases heading for the Supreme Court right now. Taking a step back, it seems like there has to be a better way to do this than continually needing courts and even the Supreme Court to step in, right? Or is there? We posed that question to a bunch of people involved in this process and got some really unexpected answers. First up, let's start with Jason Torchinsky, a partner at the firm Holzman Vogel, who's represented Republicans in a lot of redistricting cases. I asked him whether this whole thing has just gotten too litigious. Do you think that there's just too much litigation and, and that's a problem? Uh, I mean, given that I'm a lawyer, I'm not going to tell you that too much litigation is a problem. <laughs> of course, of course. But in all seriousness, Jason thinks political maps being drawn by politicians is a good thing, even if they result in lawsuits. Or, actually, a better way to characterize Jason's views is that he thinks the system is way better than the alternative, taking this process out of politicians' hands and giving it to independent redistricting commissions, which more than a dozen states have already done. He says even with their obvious biases, it's better to have politicians drawing maps than unelected bureaucrats. Redistricting commissions really just feed the growth of the administrative state. They take the discretion away from the politically accountable representatives and they move it to technocrats or bureaucrats. 
And furthermore, Jason says, commissions are only as good as their bylaws, and sometimes those bylaws aren't so great. He gave an example of a commission in Illinois, yes, them again, that had a very strange way of breaking a deadlock. In fact, Jason decided to look this up for me during our interview. Actually, hang on, let me, let me get this right, hang on. As he discovered, the rules there stated that if the eight-member redistricting commission is deadlocked, an Illinois court submits the name of two people, a Democrat and a Republican, to be a potential tiebreaker, and those two names are literally drawn from a hat. In the 2000 cycle, the names of the commission's tiebreaker was selected by pulling a commissioner's name from a replica of Lincoln's stovepipe hat. (laughs) You know, I'm glad that you I'm glad they specified what the hat was. I was going to ask that. That was going to be my first question is, is it a Cubs hat? Is it a White Sox hat? No, it was a it was a Lincoln (laughs) hat. (laughs) So Jason, the Republican attorney, doesn't like redistricting commissions. But would it surprise you that the Democrats we spoke to have their own reasons for being leery of commissions? Do you think that having in all 50 states a body that draws the maps that is totally disconnected from politics, if that could be such a thing, is that the solution or would you prefer to see something else? What we have seen and your caveat about if you can really do it is is the devil's in the details. That's Marina Jenkins, executive director of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. She says independent commissions work great when they're set up perfectly and there aren't any flaws in the way they work. In other words, when they're totally independent. But that's actually a lot rarer than you'd think. For example, in Virginia, if the commission fails to meet its deadline, map-making authority goes to the state Supreme Court. So whichever party has more appointees on that court has a huge incentive to delay, delay, delay. Marina says, given how flawed this process is, whether commission run or not, Democrats aren't going to be shy about filing a lawsuit. Yes, it would be wonderful for us to work ourselves out of jobs because we reach a point where that is not an issue and we don't have to worry about that. And we have a functioning democracy that just interprets the will of the people appropriately. Uh, We don't have that right now and the threats are huge. Justin Levitt, who you heard from earlier, had a pretty interesting theory about one of the factors behind all these redistricting lawsuits. He pointed out that when state legislatures get sued for drawing biased maps, they're usually represented in court by their own state's attorney general. So, Justin says, that means lawmakers have no incentive to be cautious when drawing maps, because if they get sued, no big deal. They have a free, taxpayer-funded defense attorney. Unlike every other policy where we tend to think that the threat of meritorious litigation is going to stave off some damage on the front end. In redistricting in particular, legislators have very little incentive to do the right thing. They'd much rather do the wrong thing and get sued and fight like crazy to keep the wrong thing in place because they get to use taxpayer funds and the benefit of delay in doing that. This was supported by data we got from Ben Williams. He's one of the redistricting gurus at the National Conference of State Legislatures, a bipartisan research and training group created in cooperation with all 50 states. Ben says three-fourths of states got hit with some kind of lawsuit in this most recent round of redistricting. But unlike a lot of others, he doesn't actually see this as a bad thing. Quite the opposite, actually. He says it's just the judicial system acting as the release valve for democracy. Is our processes bumpy through time? Of course, there's never any moment where you could look at all 50 states and say they're marching to the same tune. But I think that it is true that 
even if you are the kind of person who believes that redistricting is not going well, the existing system is built in a way to allow people to affect change. So then that's where we're at. Both sides, Republicans and Democrats, are fighting an existential, never-ending war over political boundaries. And both sides have every incentive in the world to take their fights as far as they can. Abba Khanna, one of the attorneys you heard from earlier who opposed Republicans in the Alabama case, says it doesn't even really make sense for Democrats to try to seek compromise on this or to hand over their power to independent commissions. How effective is that if basically you have some states that are unilaterally disarming on this front, but then continue to have states like Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, who have no indication that they're about to give up their power to a redistricting commission? Yeah, that's just... uh... I know, I mean, I, that makes total sense. That argument just feels so disheartening that, like, the Democrats say, oh, we have to gerrymander because they're gerrymandering. And Republicans say, you know, we have to gerrymander because Democrats are gerrymandering. Like, that's just, where, where does that lead us? That's, and that's fair. And I don't think that's actually the answer. I don't think it says, you know, it's basically a race to the bottom of gerrymandering. Um, I just think that, you know, there are certainly solutions we can, we can try to come up with as a nation to the problem of gerrymandering at the statewide and local level. But I think they need to have a little more buy-in from multiple states or potentially all states. Maybe it's federal legislation. Um, But it's gotta be something that makes clear this, particularly when we are electing a Congress. We need to make sure that all states are playing by the rules. So it looks like that's where we're at. The path to peace and the redistricting wars rests with the folks on Capitol Hill who, as you may have heard, are having trouble even choosing a Speaker of the House, let alone totally remaking the way political maps are drawn. That's a pretty pessimistic note to end on, so instead of pessimism, let's do realism. I turned again to my colleague Greg Giroux, who's been covering politics for the last several decades, because I wanted to get a sense of where he thought things are heading. Will these decennial map-making fights just continue to get more drawn out and more litigious? Or could something realistically happen that could change the course we're on? According to Greg, nope. Redistricting is always going to produce kind of the knockdown, drag out fights just because we're talking about political power and control of Congress or state legislatures or county commissions or whatever governmental body that gets affected by redistricting. All right, let's end it there. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, and Greg Giroux. We had special help today from Jonathan Service at the Carnegie Mellon Institute for Strategy and Technology, as well as from Kathy Rizzo. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.